Today's episode of GM Street is brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network, where the Ringer NBA show has you covered for all things NBA draft. I went on Heat Check this morning with John Gonzalez and also on the Bill Simmons podcast to talk about what the Charlotte Hornets are up to and why Michael Jordan will finally listen to his GM. Uh, You can check out our new music podcast, Own Shovel, hosted by Micah Peters, as well as our yummy new food podcast, The Dave Chang Show. And as always, be sure to check out theringer.com. Where we have Westworld coverage, NBA takes. There's just so many of those around here. So many NBA takes. Uh, Infinity War, in case you missed that movie, please go check that out. Uh, All the coverage is still there, I'm sure. Uh, It does not go away on the internet. And of course, a ton more. Um, But before you go do that, listen, because GM Street is coming up right now. Welcome to GM Street, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. It is Monday. It is June 18th. And joining me on the line from New Jersey, it is Michael Lombardi. Lombardi, how you doing? Tate, I am doing well. Couldn't be better. NBA draft week. I like it. This is like my favorite time of the year. I get to watch guys put hats on and then not really be sure that they're going to those teams with the hats. That's what I like the most about this time of the year. It's the hat collection. It's the hat collection, yes. It is the second most popular uh, professional sports league draft uh, that's out in the world. Um, There's a lot of coverage that's happening on the Ringer and in the Bill Simmons universe for sure. Uh, I went and did a a mock draft on the Bill Simmons podcast this morning to talk about the Hornets taking the the 11th pick this season back-to-back years. And, you know, I think that Kevin Knox was the guy that I I could see them taking there with the coming out of Kentucky. But the the big question that everyone is talking about is what are the uh, the, the Philadelphia 76ers going to do with that 10th pick because they're obviously a playoff contender they, they they view themselves as a team that can really contend in the East they're trying to get another piece after what happened last year with Fultz um, I just have to ask you Lombardi are, 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 do, do you buy into the Mikel Bridges thing coming out of Villanova and going there get, getting a championship winner and, and a guy that understands culture in the building for the Sixers I kind of, you know, I like Bridges because of the Villanova. You know, I, I think the the background of the player he can he can defend. He's got, you know, I think a seven two wingspan, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. He's long in terms of that. So, you know, look, but you read the clips, and there's not, you know, there's not great coverage. You can't really get unless Wojo drops a bomb. You really don't get a lot of stuff on on the team. So, you know, for me, it, it, you know, there's a lot of talk that the Sixers might try to move up or get a piece that's a big piece and they can utilize, which would be interesting to see if Brett Brown does it. Now that he's operating it on his own, you know, I think it's going to be coach-centric and they're going to try to fill the pieces. This whole rumor about Kawhi Leonard, did you see the the the, um, the trade that they had? They had Fultz, Covington, and the 10th pick going to San Antonio for Kawhi Leonard. I mean, if they if San Antonio would do that deal, which there's no way they would do that deal. That looks like an internet rumor deal. You know, you would think the Sixers would jump all over that, but I don't buy it. Yeah, it's one of those things where, I mean, obviously Robert Covington is a first-team all-defense selection, um, so that adds some value there, and the Spurs may have some interest. But it is funny to me that every single team in the NBA somehow has a Kawhi Leonard deal you know, mapped out for how he's going to come to their team. And it's always done from the perspective of of the like the Lakers, the Sixers. Yes. It's always done from their perspective. It's never done from. And then when the trade happens, everybody's like, "Oh my God, I can't believe they gave up that much for him. They could have had him for." No, no, don't you understand? You could have never had him for what you're talking about because what you're talking about isn't realistic. And let's be honest, I think it blows me away. Yeah, it blows me away too that no one even wants to talk about the fact that the Spurs don't have to trade Kawhi Leonard just because he is leaking it out to the world that he wants to be traded does not mean that R.C. Buford and Greg Popovich want to trade him or will trade yeah. him for that matter. So uh, that's that's all NBA news, guys. If you haven't uh, caught up on that, uh, stay tuned this week. All the draft coverage will be happening. 
We got to talk about the NFL. Uh, I'm going to be on it. I, I promise you, I'll be all over it. I'll be all over it. I'll be reading everything. I, I'll be reading it all, and I won't believe any of it, but I'll be reading it all. Don't worry about it. Tate Fraser. Well, follow Mike Lombardi's Twitter. It'll be a good time. You'll hear uh, all, all the conflicting, uh, you know, back and forth between what the, the Sixers should do and will do and uh, won't do. And Brett Brown, a lot of pressure on that guy. So I hope he figures it out. But uh, we got to talk about a lot of pressure on a, a lot of NFL teams as they get into, uh, you know, we get out of voluntary workouts, we start to get into OTA. And we have the the strength of schedule is is a big topic of discussion, um, and, and we're going to try to map out a formula for finding the sleeper teams and teams to watch out uh, out for this season. And as we go through the 2018 strength of schedule, the the, the number one team on that list is the Green Bay Packers, uh, and, and we did this by uh, the opponents combined 2017 win percentage and the opponents combined 2017 record. So that's what it's based off of. So the Green Bay Packers are number one on that list. Um, if you look back at 2017, the Denver Broncos. Broncos were number one. Uh, go heading into last season, um, that didn't, did not quite work out as far as the the playoffs. The Chiefs, though, were the number two team, and you know they had a nice little run and a start to the season. And a lot of people viewed them as a contender. Um, so Lombardi, what what is the formula for understanding strength of schedule and how it can impact uh, your team? And and how do we how do we locate these sleepers that are out there? Well, we always look at it. Okay, so so going into the season, you know that Houston has the easiest schedule. And so it's fairly easy. You know, whenever you go to Vegas and you bet the over wins and all that, you know, Houston's an attractive team to bet because, A, they have an easy schedule, Mm -hmm. and, B, they get half their team back, right? So they get all their defensive players, whether it's J.J. Watt, Marcellus, they get their quarterback, Deshaun Watson back, they get their running back foreman off of the Achilles. So they pick up some pieces back to their team, and their schedule tells you it's easy. The higher schedule, when you look at Green Bay, who has the hardest schedule going into the season, you say to yourself, okay, well, maybe that's the case, but, you know, they get Aaron Rodgers back. So, you know, I wouldn't negate that. I mean, the Chiefs last year had the second highest toughest schedule, and they still made the playoffs. So I think what you really need to do when you look at strength of schedule is you need to look at the teams in the middle of the pack. And, for example, last year, the 10th easiest schedule were the Eagles. The 17th easiest schedule were the Rams. Okay, from 10 to 17, every one of those teams made the playoffs with the exception of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Philadelphia made the playoffs, New England made the playoffs, Atlanta made the playoffs, the Saints, the Panthers, the Rams. All those teams made the playoffs. And so you say to yourself, there's those middle-of-the-pack teams, what do they have in common? They probably have some kind of quarterback play. The Rams got it last year with Goff. They have some kind of defensive temperament. And they've probably got a schedule that favors them where they're not going to go on four or five game losing streaks, so they're going to knock themselves out. And so, therefore, the middle of the pack. Now, you always look at the bottom of the pack and say, okay, last year the Colts had the easiest schedule in football. And they proved it to the point where the Colts were a 50-minute team. They played 50 minutes really well. They couldn't close. You know, they had more leads into the fourth quarter than most teams in the NFL, except they couldn't win any games. And, and that's probably not because the Colts were clo- a talented team but because the Colts' schedule wasn't very good. And so then you look at the bottom, and you see from 27 to 32, four of those six teams made the playoffs, the Vikings, the Steelers, Jacksonville, and Tennessee. And then this year you look at it and say, okay, let's see, who's down there at the bottom this year? Well, once again, it's Houston, Tennessee, Cincinnati, Oakland, Denver, Jacksonville, Pittsburgh, the Jets. So you've got to think that the one team that you have to think is going to benefit from the most of all this is the Chargers. Last year had a tough schedule. This year they have the 24th easiest schedule 
you got to think they're going to take advantage of it. Absolutely. And, and one of the benefits, I mean, we should say this, if you are in the AFC South, you are conditioned to have an easier schedule just because of the way the AFC South uh, has been much maligned over the years. But obviously the Titans have, have taken a step up. We saw them make the playoffs. We've seen, you know, Houston with Deshaun Watson. There's a lot of upside there. Andrew Luck is now throwing a football, even though it is a college-sized football. He is now throwing a football. We have video evidence of that. So that's that's some exciting stuff for AFC South fans. Uh, I want to look at what you were talking about, the middle of the pack, and try to find some of the, uh, these teams to look out for. And I look at the 12th uh, team that's right there, and that is the Carolina Panthers, which is followed right behind by the Atlanta Falcons, the Washington Redskins, the 49ers, the Dallas Cowboys, the Miami Dolphins, the Buffalo Bills, and then we get to the Super Bowl champion, Philadelphia Eagles. That's right in that sweet spot that we saw work out last year. So if we're on that same trend, that those are a lot of teams right there in the middle of the pack that could be some real contenders and some and, and some you know definite playoff teams. And then and if you look down a little bit further, you get to the Baltimore Ravens and team that is trying to find their identity right now with, you know, Lamar and the Joe Flacco situation. But then we get to New England, you know, with the, the juggernaut that they are. And who knows right behind them, the Indianapolis Colts, what we'll see with with Andrew Luck coming back. And then, like you said, at 24, we have the Chargers. And, and I think that's really the cutoff line because then we hit Jets, uh, Steelers, Jaguars, Broncos, Raiders, Bengals, Titans, Texans to finish it all out. Um, but th- that little mid middle of the pack period right there with all those teams. I mean, if you are a, you know, Dallas Cowboys fan or you are a Falcons fan, or if you are, you know, even a Buffalo Bills fan, that you're right in that range based on what we saw last year to maybe make a run and obviously, you know, be in playoff contention. Right. Now, you know, Vegas doesn't think Miami's going to be very good, but they're sitting in the sweet spot with Tannehill coming back. You know, maybe they can find a way. They got a schedule that's conducive to it. But I think the 49ers at 15, you know, they're sitting there perfectly primed Jimmy with G. their young team coming back. Garoppolo's going to get to play the full season. Their defense should be better. They got a running back. They're going to have more weapons for their offense. They got a good head coach that I believe is a good head coach. So to me, I look at San Francisco and say, you know what? They could be the Rams of last year. The Rams this year have to have the fifth highest schedule. So it's going to get harder for the Rams. You know, last year we saw the Rams get behind in Dallas and make this great comeback in the second half. But when the Rams played the Vikings, when the Rams played Washington early in the season, when Washington was healthy, when the Rams played the Eagles, when they played those better teams, they didn't win. Now, they had a great year, don't get me wrong, but they didn't beat Atlanta in a playoff game at home. They couldn't beat New Orleans. They they beat New Orleans at home. That was probably one of their best wins. You know, beating Seattle, does it really count anymore? I don't know. You know, and that's another team to look at. Here's Seattle. When you look at Seattle, Seattle's got the fifth hardest schedule next year. I mean, Seattle is a declining team with the fifth hardest schedule. And if you believe that, if you believe Russell Wilson's the guy, then go with it. But I think there's a lot of pieces still have to come together for Seattle for you to be convinced that they can do it. And you mentioned the Rams. I mean, I think that they could be caught in a little bit of what we saw with the Cowboys. You know, they have that great season where they get 14 wins and then they basically just run it right back and then they struggle last year. I mean, there could be a little bit of a regression with the Rams, especially with this schedule. But they did, as we know, add a bunch of talent uh, on the defensive side. Out of the football, so they did tweak some things. It's not like they're going to bring back the exact same roster they had last year. You obviously with Sue and Talib and Donald, you know, waiting on his new contract. So uh, those are some teams to watch. I want to talk about the team that has the hardest schedule, though. And well, one more thing before you oh, go, yeah. take Frazier. I, I think this. I think Pat Riley has an effect on this. Mm-hmm. So I think Pat Riley, the disease of me, has an effect on this strength of schedule. And there's some team in here that like. It's going to be affected by the disease of me. And it, could it be the Rams? Sure, it could be. Could it be Seattle? 
I think there's a lot of controversy in Seattle. Could and, they, even though they be, didn't make the playoffs. Let's be honest. I mean, the Legion of Boom is basically, you know, over at this point. And I think the disease of me has already, you know, infiltrated Seattle over the past couple of seasons, to be honest. No doubt. And then here's the one team that I think you got to be careful of, Minnesota. I mean, we all loved, you know, Case Keenum got a huge contract. He played the 27th easiest schedule last year. Plus, he played, that schedule was easy for him last year. And then he played that easy schedule without Aaron Rodgers. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now this year, Kirk Cousins comes into a tougher situation, and he's got to play the, the eighth-hardest schedule in the NFL. Now, a lot of people think the Bears are a team to reckon with. Well, the Bears have a tougher schedule. Same thing with the Lions. The Lions have the second-hardest schedule. So, to me, I think it's a combination of those things. I think Minnesota, the expectations are higher. They've got a lot of good players, and Cousins is in there, but now the strength of their schedule is much different. Them and the Rams, you have to be worried about. The other key factor here, Tate Frazier, is this. 50% of the teams that make the playoffs year from one year to the next don't return. Mm-hmm. So there's six teams that aren't going to make it from last year to this year. Who are those? And I think this is where you look, and that middle of the pack is where they get replaced. I think you're looking at the Tennessee Titans. Um, just kidding. Just kidding, Tennessee fans. But the fans. Titans, I mean, look, the Titans, they walk down the street, they have the, the 31st easiest schedule. You're right. You're right. And that, that's the draw. I mean, but that being said, I think Houston is, is what skews that a lot because Houston's schedule Houston's team last year wasn't Houston's team. Now, the John Gruden-led Raiders, they have the 29th easiest schedule. Gruden comes into a situation, takes over a team with the 29th easiest schedule. You've got to think that team is primed to make the playoffs. New coach, offensive mind, tighten things down. You would have to say to yourself, that team is primed to make the run. Denver's not primed to make the run. The Chargers maybe. We know that the Chiefs are, you know, Chiefs are going through a new quarterback. I, I think that's the one team that jumps out if you say, wait a minute, here it is. You get a new coach, get a new guy come in here, easy schedule, here they go. I want to talk about, uh, before we move on, uh, now, now I want to talk about some other teams. Uh, the two teams that are tied for 25th uh, easiest schedule, the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Jacksonville Jaguars, uh, two teams that are obviously uh, juggernauts in the AFC uh, at this point, especially on the defensive side of the football. But Blake Bortles and Ben Roethlisberger having that setup with those, you know, with that draw of a schedule. I mean, th- those are teams really to watch out for too, right? They they can really make no a doubt. Run. But remember, Cleveland's zero sixteen, so that adds those sixteen losses go mm-hmm. into Pittsburgh's schedule, which softens it up. So gotcha. if Cleveland's a little better. That schedule's not going to be soft. Same thing with Jacksonville. You know, all those losses by Houston last year are going to so- soften their schedule up. So I, I think there's some anomaly here, and you got to kind of. That's why I don't think this is. And I'm not a statistician, but this is when you look at the lower level teams. You have to be really careful thinking they're going to make an immediate jump because that strength of schedule isn't really accurate because you must understand that there was an, an aberration within those numbers. Yep. Whereas the middle of the pack, there's typically not an aberration. Yeah, I, I forgot about Huey headlines. and uh, You know he, he you can never forget. He went swimming in Lake Erie. Can you? He took the whole team with him. Absolutely. Messing up the mean, though. Uh, that's what he's up to. Uh, let's talk about the, the team with the hardest schedule and, and how they've been in the headlines. Uh, Mike McCarthy... Um, this is a, a new a new system that he's been putting in. Obviously, we remember the CBA in 2011. It changed uh, so some of the makeup with with off season off season workouts. I mean, they used to start in March and then they were pushed back to April. There's a lot of uh, non contact, a lot of people wearing shorts, a lot of no pads. Um, but Mike McCarthy, his new thing is. I have the veterans. I know that the veterans, you know, are up to speed on everything that's going on in Green Bay. Let's give them the time off. So Mike McCarthy is letting guys that are 
veterans of, of four more years, they don't have to come in. And if you are a rookie or up to your fourth year of the NFL, then you do come in and do some extra work because he wants to work with these uh, with these guys who, who are younger and, and help groom them a little bit. Um, just that philosophy. Can you talk about that, Lombardi? I think it's really smart. I think it's probably the right thing to do. Because, look, how many times is Aaron Rodgers going to throw a Y stick? How many more times does he have to run H2 pass? You know, like he can do that. Like you got to get other players ready to play football. And because they've laxed the rules in terms of letting the, the rookies and the free agents come in there, mm-hmm. you've got to catch them up. So, you, you know, you've got to think of it this way, Tate Frazier. You're in them, but basically the rookies are like people that have just dropped into a, a, a class halfway through the class. Right, so yep. they're studying world history, and they come in six weeks into the into the class. Meanwhile, the other people have had it for six weeks, so they're behind, and they never catch up. And football is not a game that you can play with fast, and you can play with quickness if you don't know where you're going. You've got to know where you're going first. That's why Dungy was so successful with his defense. He made his defense so simplistic that young players could play, and young players didn't require a lot of thinking, so they could use their skill set to play fast. And I think what McCarthy's doing here is very good. I think it's revolutionary. I think it's important for them to get the young players. They need all the reps they can get because fans don't understand. Football is a mathematical sport. You only have so many reps. And if you're giving them to the players that you know can do that job, you're taking away from guys you're trying to develop. So what he's doing is essentially starting a farm system there in Green Bay. He's developing his players. He's player development. And when we used to have a lot of two-a-days camps, I used to believe that the second practice should be just nothing but for the young players. It should just be for the young players. And it helps injury-wise because when you've got a bunch of young players out there, they won't get the old players hurt. You know, the young players, sometimes the bad players fall on the ground, get somebody hurt. That's why when you go out to practice during the season, Tate, you never worry about injuries because the players know how to practice. But when you go out to practice in August or September or uh, July and August, you're scared to death about it just because half the guys don't know how to practice. So this is good. And I think what McCarthy's doing is it's different. So obviously people are going to second guess them, but I think it's the way it should go. And there's a little bit of nostalgia there with Mike McCarthy. He is, uh, you know, in the 2012, like right after the new CBA was launched, uh, I think it was Jeff Saturday, if I'm remembering this story correctly. He, he came into camp and, and it was during the summer and they were running 11 on 11 and they had pads on. And, you know, and he made some comment like, does this look like non-contact to you guys? Because McCarthy was still basically running things that they had, as they had always run it. And McCarthy, you know, was never gotten reprimanded by the league or anything like that. But he is a guy that believes in building, like you said, a, a school. I mean, he was known for having the quote-unquote quarterback school. He got Aaron Rodgers in there and worked him, you know, from March all the way through just to get him ready. And he came in his second year and was trying to get him prepared for everything. And, you know, Deshaun Kaiser's a guy they have in there now, and they're trying to get him, you know, in there and get as much as reps as possible. And Brett Hundley, we've seen there. Um, so it, McCarthy is a guy that that wants to have the time with these players, and it seems like he understands that he has to dedicate it to the young guys to make sure that they are up to speed. Because without this time, and without him basically making up the lost time that they used to have, uh, you know, he, he's trying to make it a better situation for all of his guys, especially in the quarterback room, because it seems like right. he keeps bringing up the fact that he loves having Brett and Sean, um, and, you know, and, and making them feel comfortable because, you know, he really believes in developing guys as we as we've seen with Aaron Rodgers. You know, and I think it's really important because I think here's the reality of it. You need your young players to be able to come in and play in. Early in the season, yeah, that's great. But what they really need to be is veteran players in November, December, and into January to help you in that playoff run. Those fresh legs have got to help you. And I think by doing this, 
he solves two problems. He keeps his older players fresh for late in the year. I mean, this is the whole thing about Brady and Gronk and all this stuff. They're missing camp and everybody's up, up because they hadn't done it in the past. The Patriots basically have played an extra season than most teams. When you've gone to seven conference championship games in a row and you've gone to Super Bowls, you're playing almost, you're playing into late January. Most people are done the end of December. So they're playing a month every year. So they've added a year. They've added seven months to their career of football. Think about that, right? Mm-hmm. So at some point, you know, Brady needs to just, like, do nothing. You know, Gronk needs to do nothing. and they get need, But they need to get their other players ready. And I think sometimes, I remember when I was in, in Cleveland, I went out to practice one time, and Todd, and, and, and Todd Philcox was taking a lot of the reps and, not that Todd was a great quarterback, but he was taking a lot of the reps in in, in December, and I went with the Belichick, and I'm like, Bill, now why would we give Phil Cox so many reps today? He says, how many more times do we need to see Kozar throw a stick? You know, and he's right. You know, it's like, like how many more times do you need to see Eli Manning throw? What they should do with Eli Manning is rest him, get Davis Webb ready to play, see what Davis Webb can do, because once Eli gets his reps in camp, he's going to be ready to go. He The OTA days aren't going to require that much. Now, he's got to learn a new offense, but, I mean, Eli can learn the offense. That's not too hard. So it's like running back holdouts. To me, Le'Veon Bell's holdout is the best thing that can happen to the Steelers. He can't get hurt when he's holding out. You know? Yeah. You want running back. It, Leonard Fournette, don't even worry about practicing. In the, you know, don't worry about preseason games. Like, just get him ready for the opener. So I, I think there's a lot of merit to what Mike's doing. I think it's smart. Should we call it McCarthyism? This is the new version of that where he's just, you I think know, it is. Yeah. I really do. But let's, you know, let's take it. We're going to talk, you know, like, like, okay, John Gruden's complaining about Christian Hackenberg. You know, he trades for Christian Hackenberg, and then he blames it on the system, saying that <laughs> Hackenberg's been a product of the system, how he's not been able to develop as a quarterback. What, what is John talking about? Like, explain to me. I mean, John's a smart guy. John, John gives reps. To, John wants all his veterans taking all the reps. John doesn't want to develop any quarterback. He cuts the, then he cuts the guy, and he blames it on that. Well, why would you trade for him? The same problems that occurred for Hackenberg before you traded for him are the same problems after you traded for him. Like, if you trade for Hackenberg, before you say, okay, we're going to take Hackenberg on, here's the plan how we're going to handle Hackenberg. Okay, we're going to bring him in here. He's going to get X amount of reps, and after four weeks, we're going to evaluate him and see where we are. You just don't make a trade and say, oh, let's just trade for Hackenberg, see what he got, and then we have one day of practice. Okay, we don't have enough time for Hackenberg. It's the system's fault. How dumb does that look? Yeah. You trade for Hackenberg. You trade him and say, look, okay, look, I know the guy hasn't played in two years. He's the only quarterback in NFL history who was drafted in the second round or, or higher and never took an NFL snap. So we know he's had no reps. Now, we also know that he, when he, at practice, he barely could hit the side of a barn. I mean, the ball, you know, you talk about the guy from Major League, you know, the guy in Major League, <laughs> yeah. I mean, he couldn't make a throw ever, right? Uh-huh, exactly. So, you know, that's Hackenberg. He's all over the place. But the point here is, is like, once you trade for a player, you've got to make a plan for how you're going to develop the player. Gruden's blaming it on the system. McCarthy's saying to himself, here's the system, let me figure out how to work it. I think it's brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. And we should say, I mean, John Gruden is, you know, he had his probably his FFCA visor on when he made that trade because he did love Hackenberg when he was coming out for the draft. So. But he loved everybody. I yes. mean, that's the point. He loves everybody. And then when he cuts the guy, he doesn't want the guy mad at him because he cut him. And so he, so he blames it on somebody else. I mean, that's the worst thing to do. I used to say that all the time. Like, look, the one thing is when you cut a player or you release a player, let's not have this in an organization where I wanted to keep you, but they wanted to cut you. Like, that's the worst thing you can do. Or, you know, it's the C. 
CBA's fault. You know, players don't want to hear that. Players see right through that. You need to say to the player, look, hey, here's why we cut you. Here's our thinking. We could be wrong, but this is the way we, you know, we came up with the decision. We didn't think you could do this or that. Be a man and tell them what you think. Don't sit there and try to blame it on the system. Well, the system was in place before you traded for them. Yeah, be straightforward, be upfront, and uh, the rest will usually work out well. That's what they say. Um, I want to talk about a quarterback that uh, is drawing eyeballs and, and is making you know lots of conversation. I mean, there's been conversation that he is going to be involved in the offense in some way, whether it is he is a quarterback or not, and that is Lamar Jackson of the Baltimore Ravens. Uh, RG3 said that he wants to nurture Lamar Jackson, and I can't wait to see him fly away um, and take off this season. So there, there's just a lot of buzz around Lamar Jackson and what's going on with the Baltimore Ravens. Obviously, we understand the situation with Flacco being there in a, in a semi-lame duck scenario. So just Lamar Jackson himself, what are you hearing, and is this good for the Ravens You know, to have a guy like this? Well, I think Lamar did exactly what we thought he would do before the draft. When we were talking on the draft shows on GM Street, we mm-hmm. talked about how he's going to go in there, and what he's going to do is he's going to mesmerize the veterans, and that's a veteran-dominant team. I mean, T-Sizzle controls that team pretty much. So when he watches this guy and sees how fast he is and watches him do the things, and some of the things he does are not great. I mean, let's face it, he's been inaccurate at times during practice, I'm told. He's been, you know, all over the place, but, but, his, but his home runs are legitimately big-time plays. And those big-time plays jump out at you. It's not middle of the road. It's, it's feast or famine. He's going to be great, maybe have a few bad plays. And I think what he's doing is exactly what I thought he could do in the draft, is what a lot of people in the NFL thought he could do, is he's coming in there, and he's dazzling him with his athleticism and his speed. They already called him a, a, a young Michael Vick, which everybody, including Michael Vick, said he was better than Michael Vick. So I think it's just the status quo, and they're going to find a way to get him in the offense. And I think, you know, it's funny, in, in, in Gridiron Genius, the book I just finished writing, I, I, they, they wanted me to write a chapter about the future of football and what it will look like 20 years from now, and so I did. And, and I really think there's going to be a time where we're going to almost have two quarterbacks, like the old single wing. Mm-hmm. You know, could you imagine Deshaun Watson and Lamar Jackson on the field at the same time? Who plays quarterback? Who plays wide receiver? Who does what? And who does this? Or running back. They how can play anything. It, right. How hard, how hard is that to defend? Oh, my God. Who's the quarterback? You know, you've got to change this. And, and it is and because the offenses can stay simple and the plays are explosive and the quarterback can do some damage. I think this is pretty smart on Baltimore's part to utilize him in some way to get him indoctrinated into the offense and then let him do some things and have a package for him. I think it'll be a good thing. And look, Baltimore's a team. They know everything's on the line. I mean, look, Steve Bashotti, he's made it very clear it's either win now or everybody's going home. I think it's a smart move. And we should say uh, it has been reported out of out of Ravens camp that they are toying with the idea of doing uh, some two quarterback stuff with Flacco and Lamar both out there together. Um, you talk about veterans that have been you know had glowing reviews for Lamar Jackson. I mean Eric Weddle, the safety, um, said that he was as talented of a player that he's ever seen, um, and that believes he has a bright future ahead. You know Lamar Jackson ran uh, you know the first team offense for an entire day at minicamp uh, on Friday, I believe. So uh, it, it seems like everything is going in the right direction and. He's obviously worth that 30-second pick, and you know that was a great move to move back into the first round and take him. I think he's going to be well worth more than the 30s. He's one of those guys that when he, when they drove him off the lot, the car ended up being worth more than it ended up with before they bought it. There's no and depreciation. The picks, yep. yeah, and there's no doubt he's got appreciation. And I think you know when, when you get guys like Weddle or Derwin James said the same thing about him when mm-hmm. he played against them when he was at the Florida State, when you get guys say this kind of stuff about a player, they see it because they're watching it all the time. And 
you know, I, I was watching Brett Favre with, with Gruden on, on the one-on-one, and he was talking about how players didn't think he could make the throw against cover two. And I think what you see is players watch Lamar do things that they've never seen done before, and that's what separates him. Now, sometimes it's not going to be very good. Sometimes he's going to throw the ball in the dirt, and you're going to get wonder. And maybe the third down percentage won't be as high. But those spectacular plays he makes, watch out. And speaking of spectacular plays, we need to talk about a guy that has been known to make a few uh, back with the New York Giants. He was obviously traded in that big blockbuster trade down to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and that is Jason Pierre-Paul, JPP as he's known. Uh, Dirk Cutter, the head coach of the Buccaneers, came out and he said uh, he he's fine with JPP missing OTAs. It was sort of a family situation. I think he was dealing dealing with um, you know, taking his kids to school or, or like they're, they're making the transition down to Tampa Bay, it seems like. Um, but he is a you know a generational talent with being able to rush the passer. Um, if you are you know someone in that Bucks front office, obviously Dirk Cutter says he's fine with it. Are you concerned with JPP or are you just gonna like you said let a veteran sit out and get ready for the season? I think the key for them is is to get him ready to play. I mean, obviously he he's got to be the he's got to be the dimension that they they believe he could be. I, I haven't seen it since he you know the firecracker incident with his hands. I haven't seen him be the same player he was as a rookie that I thought he was the most dominant player. I mean, remember the Eagles took Brandon Graham ahead of him, and they took a lot of heat for it. And Brandon Graham has ended up being a a, a totally better player than JPP. Initially he wasn't, and he's ended up becoming a better player. So. I think it's a huge year for JPP to really show that he has not lost any of his skills. How he gets in shape, I'm not sure. Having Vinny Curry on the other side will help. I think having Noah Spence in the rotation as well, and then, of course, having McCoy in there helps him tremendously. So, to me, it's a big year. If the Bucks are able to sneak out of that this, this where they are in terms of you know, and, and get to the top of the NFC South and, and be able to do it. Look, they're sitting right there at the perfect position. I mean, their strength of schedule at next year, Tate Frazier's fourth. They're the fourth hardest schedule in football. Mm-hmm. So they need that defensive line to be able to rush the pass. Because remember, Mike Smith's all zone. Mike Smith's going to drop the spots. He's going to read the quarterback's eyes. He's going to break on the ball. And he's going to rely on four guys to get pressure on the quarterback. And if they can get back to where they were two years ago on third down, now all of a sudden it helps. And again, everything to Tampa Bay comes down to Jameis Winston. How good is he and how, good, how well have we evaluated him? Is Jameis Winston as good as Teddy Bridgewater? I don't know. I think we need to see how good he really is and evaluate at that point. And I think JPP needs to be able to do it for defense. And JP on paper with Gerald McCoy seems like a formidable front line, the kind of line that you would want to have if you want to get four guys rushing up the field so you can drop back in those zones uh, as Mike Smith likes to do. Um, So we'll keep our eyes on that. Jameis Winston said that uh, obviously winning cures everything, so he's hoping that they can get on the right train this season and and see what happens. I really think Jameis Winston's the pressure's on him. I think at this point in his career, he's got to have the big year. He's He's had big talk. Everybody's talked about how great he is. Everybody's talked about you know how he just needs to take the next step, and a lot of people forgive his interceptions. A lot of people forgive his inability to you know basically you know he's one of those guys that you know he'll miss fifteen shots and he'll still shoot the threes. He got a little J.R. Smith in him at times. Mm-hmm. You know I hate to criticize the guy like that. I don't mean it in that harsh of a way, but you know to me this is a huge year for for him because when you watch him, he's got he has more of a perception that he has a reality to him. And I, and I think that's going to be the fascinating thing is what he can do and what he can turn around. He's got the coach he wants. I mean, he handpicked the coach, right? So it's been his guy all along. And, you know, he as a, as a career, when you look at him and you say, okay, he, you know, here here's what he's done. You know, he's got to be able to show that he can lead the team to wins because they got to be able to – he's the guy. I mean, he's had 45 starts, you know. He's thrown 44 interceptions. So, you know, he doesn't protect the football. He's got 69 touchdowns. I mean, he's got 20 fumbles. 
You know, I mean, to me, this guy's got to really take a step up, and I think that's going to be the determining factor. This year is either going to be Jameis Winston is going to be the quarterback of the future for the Bucks, or they're going to have to seriously consider what they're going to do. Yeah, and reevaluate the position and, and really just reevaluate that, that core group of guys that they have down in Tampa Bay and really decide if they're going to stick with those guys and, and keep it going or if they're going to try to do um, you know uh, a, a process of rebuilding and trying to figure out what, what the future looks like. So that's something to keep an eye on there with Jameis for sure. You know, I mean, the other thing is, Tate Frazier, he's 19, you know, he's 19, he, he's 18 and 27 in those 45 starts, mm-hmm. you know, and so, you know, at great quarterbacks, you know, you get, you got to feel like, you got to feel like he can turn that thing around and, you know, 18 wins after, in 45 starts, not going to be good enough. It's not good enough. And uh, obviously, you know, for people that watched Hard Knocks last year, you saw, I mean, the biggest thing that that organization is trying to impress upon Jameis Winston is we have to value the football. We cannot have bad turnovers. And, and the Buccaneers are a team that have struggled with turnovers, especially Jameis. So uh, if he can, you know, bring some of that down, uh, you know, we we could see Jameis, you know, be a different player for, for the Buccaneers this season. Speaking of a guy that, uh, you know, was in a new situation and trying to, to find himself, uh, the former defensive coordinator for the New England Patriots, Matt Patricia, now the head coach of the Detroit Lions. It's a rookie head coach. Um, he has taken on the moniker that we always see with New England, a.k.a. do your job. Um, that, that's what they say there in New England, do your job. He is trying to bring that mentality to the Detroit Lions, uh, a, a team that you know is, is more, you know, a lot of the players in Detroit were more laid back under Caldwell, which is very similar to Tony Dungy, which is, you know, basically treat people like, like men and, and, and treat them like professionals. And, and uh, you know, Matt Patricia is coming in with a very, um, I would say, close to a college outlook on things as far as he's making guys run suicides. He's, uh, you know, he's making guys, uh, you know, do push-ups for when, when they mess up a rep or whatever it is. And some of the players, I mean, the, the Detroit Free Press, there was an op-ed that came out said, you know, Matt Patricia is in danger of losing his players already. Um, so I, I just kind of want to talk about philosophy. You know, you come from the Belichick way of doing things and you go into the Tony Dungy way of doing things. Those are two totally different philosophies on how to manage players. Obviously, both have been successful in different capacities. But do you think Patricia is going to have a problem with some of the vets uh, in Detroit? You know, Tate Frazier, I think the hardest thing for these guys that work with Bill is is to really find their authenticity. I, I, you know, I read, I've done a lot, of, you know, since i am got some free time, I've read so many books. And, and one of the books I read is called Legacy. And I think every young coach who's out there should read the book. It's by James Kerr. It's about the all-black team, uh, the rugby team from New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's how they kind of turned it around and how they established a culture within the building. And one of the areas they were able to do it is, is they talked about authenticity. And I think the key thing, for Matt Patricia is to be authentic. And when you do things that are more Belichickian than they are you, you don't look authentic. And I, and I, and I think you've got to give it some time, and I think Matt's got to be really smart to be able to say, the way I get what I want, I can't necessarily always go down the same path that Belichick went down. I'm going to have to find my own way. When Belichick came to Cleveland in 1991, people compared him to Parcells. He wasn't Parcells. He wasn't trying to be Parcells. He never was trying to be Parcells. He was trying to be Bill Belichick. Now, the media might have compared him to Bill Parcells, but that was a horrible comparison. (laughs) He was trying to be Bill Belichick, and I think that's what Matt Patricia has to do. If he can't sell that, if he can't sell that to his team, he will lose the team. But he's got to be very careful that they don't find him that way. You know, in New England, you jump off sides, you run a lap. Simple as that. Standard procedure. You know, you drop an interception, you do push-ups. Standard procedure. Most teams have those kind of, and all they are is trying to get you to focus on what you have to do. 
those are all good things. Those are, aren't things that you have to do that Belichick, just because Belichick does them, those are good things for a football team. So you can be authentic and take some of his ideas, but he's got to sell it every day that I'm authentic. I'm Matt Patricia. I'm not Bill Belichick. Yeah, and Matt Castle is a guy that is the number two option, most likely. Uh, there is a backup quarterback. Obviously, he was with the Patriots for a while. We remember him, you know, filling in for Brady when Brady got hurt um, in 2008. But you know, Castle said that you know Patricia is basically picking up, uh, you know, what Belichick used to put down with the whole "do your job." A lot of daily reminders of goals and mindsets that are important to the team, making guys run laps, like you're saying. So he. He said it was very similar to the New England makeup of how he's trying to do things, and that takes time. You know, like you said, to build a culture, it takes time, and and that will be an interesting situation to watch out for because, like I said, a lot of these veterans, it seems like they are a little taken aback by uh, what Patricia is bringing to the table. And also, you mentioned the the Bill Belichick, Bill Parcells. Uh, if you haven't watched. Um, you know, this is for the listeners. If you haven't watched the two bills, the thirty for thirty on those two guys, um, you, you need to, and you will absolutely understand what you're saying about those guys being so different. Because that was a lot of the times they had it, it, their issues came from the fact that they were so different. You know, but you know, right. Par- Parcells had a way of doing things, and Bill, you know, had his own way of doing things, and he let Bill operate, you know, with with some autonomy a lot of the time, especially with LT and, and that D line. But at the end of the day, Parcells was calling the shots, and they had different outlooks, and it, it's very cool to see uh, how those two guys handle things because you, you can have the same result by doing it totally different ways, and Patricia has to find his own way. Yeah, and both men were individuals. I mean, both Bill didn't come in there to be Parcells. He Bill's not, a, you know, Bill's not going to go to the press conference, and, and you know, and he's not going to walk around the team and, and pregame and crack jokes and try to passively, aggressively try to motivate a guy or mm-hmm. call a guy out. I mean, Bill's going to do it exactly how he does it, and Bill Parcells did it exactly how he did it. And I've often said this many times. I mean, Belichick is more of a slower, meticulous builder of what he's doing. Parcells is one of those guys. He could go in and build three or four homes at the same time. Belichick's probably only going to build one. Now, they're both going to end up with, with winning results, but they get there at different points. And I think that's what Matt has to really do. If I'm Matt Patricia, I'm spending my summer trying to figure out how to create Belichick's culture by going down different streets. Read Legacy. Read books about it, because the only way I can do it, I want what Belichick has. I just can't always drive the car the way he did it. I can't be Eric Mangini and do it the way Eric did it. It failed in Cleveland. It failed at the Jets. I can't do it the way Romeo Cornell did it in Cleveland. I can't do it the way Charlie Charlie Weiss tried to do it. You know, I got to find a way. Look, there's too much of a sample size saying that you can't do it. And so maybe I should take the Nick Saban approach and do it his way. Now, Nick couldn't do it in pro football because it was harder. But in college, he could. And I think that's what Patricia needs to do. You have to find your niche. And, uh, and, you bet. And that's, and that's what he's got to do now. Um, I'm going to transition here to a, a very you know, a somber situation and, and talk about a guy who is an absolute legend. He was you know, a Kinston, North Carolina native, Dwight Clark, uh, the San Francisco 49ers tight end and wide receiver, the man that made the catch, um, passed away uh, at 61 from ALS. And you know, these are some of my favorite times on the GM Street Podcast where we get a little bit of a Michael Lombardi story story time with Michael Lombardi as we'll call it uh, and uh, can you just give us a little bit of insight into Dwight Clark and the man he was and obviously you know losing him and losing a legend like him uh, who did so much for the game of football is always uh, tough to see you know it, it's funny when 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 you look at the 49ers success in the in in the draft when Bill Walsh took over the team in 1979 uh, he went to work he went to Los Angeles to work out a quarterback to work out a wide receiver James Evans and who he ended up drafting, and he needed a quarterback to work out for him. And it just so happened that Leonard Armado, the agent for Joe Montana, 
had Joe in Los Angeles. Now, today that would have been against the rules because mm-hmm. Los Angeles is neither Joe's home or his college campus, so he couldn't have worked out there. But Armado had him work out for Bill, and Bill fell in love with him in the workout. Okay, and then Bill traveled back to Clemson to go work out Steve Fuller, and he needed a receiver. And so who caught balls for Steve Fuller at Clemson but the one and only Dwight Clark? Mm-hmm. And he drafted him in the 10th round. He drafted Montana in the third round in the same draft, only by happenstance. It wasn't because the 49ers had this incredible scouting <laughs> system. I mean, most people thought Dwight Clark was too slow. But my favorite memory of Dwight Clark was we played a game. It was at, it was a night before Bill Walsh called me in the hotel room and asked me, he was watching TV in his, in his hotel suite, he was watching the game on his TV thing, and it was, it was being played at the Astrodome on local Houston television, and it was Jerry Rice playing against uh, Mississippi Valley State, was playing Texas Southern in the Astrodome. And he called me in his room, I thought I did something wrong, my hands were sweaty, I went up there, and he says, Michael, get me every tape you can on this kid here, Rice. So I went downstairs. That next day, we played the Houston Oilers in a, in, a, in, a, in a slugfest. We had just lost the week before to Pittsburgh to end our, our undefeated season, and it was a slugfest. And Montana was getting beat up, and it was, get, it was blitz. Jerry Glanville was the defense coordinator. It was the grits blitz at the time, and he was blitzing like crazy. He called it the grits blitz when he went to Atlanta, but he was blitzing like crazy. And late in the game, it's 24-24. to 24, The game's tight. He throws, Montana throws a post pass to Dwight Clark, Bobbles it in his hands, up and down. Next thing you know, he catches an 80-yard touchdown. We win the game. And then later that year, we draft Jerry Rice. Wow. And my memory of Dwight Clark was so distinctive. He came in off the field the first day of, of minicamp, because back then we only had one camp. You had no rookie camps. You had no OTA days. You had one camp. Dwight Clark came back in off the field. He walked by the, the old draft room, which was the team meeting room, and he looked in the room. He stuck his head in there, and he said, Mikey, He's not only is he re- he's smooth and rich, and he kept walking, and that's who he described Jerry Rice. And I mean, Dwight's enthusiasm, his personality was incredible. Every afternoon when we were at training camp at Rockland, there would be a, a, a football game in the pool, and they would all play. And it was it was really a great time. And the one thing I learned from that team was great teams like each other. That team liked each other. That's why we won in San Francisco. And I think Dwight, you know, had a tremendous career. And it's sad to lose somebody of, of his personality at such a young age. And, and I'm always, and so many guys from that team, to me, embraced me as a young scout. And I, and I always think back on those guys. And it was tremendous. Yep. Dwight Clark, uh, two-time Super Bowl champion, uh, an All-Pro in 1982, the re- receptions leader in 1982, uh, the great number 87. And I and I will point this out, Dwight Clark, uh I knew him from North Carolina basketball circles. People talked about how great he was at basketball, and I think that was actually his first sport. Um, his first love was the game of basketball, and he was he was a lot of people's uh, top pick to go to go to a school like North Carolina or NC State, and I think even Appalachian State at one time. He almost transferred to Appalachian State. I think uh, was a story my dad told me one time. So Dwight Clark, see, see that little nugget there is so important in scouting. Do you realize Joe Montana? almost went to North Carolina State to play basketball, mm-hmm. that Joe Montana's first love was basketball, that he wanted to play two sports, and he, and he went to Notre Dame thinking maybe he could, and he couldn't play basketball at Notre Dame, even though he was good enough to play basketball. See, that's the kind of information that you need to know as a scout. Like, you know, Dwight Clark is sitting there, he picked in the 10th round, but the way you just described his athleticism as a basketball player tells you he's better than any of his time speed. And that little information is what really separates good scouts from bad scouts. And there's also a difference between time speed, running a drill versus knowing how to be quick and knowing to have, how to have speed within the, uh, within the game. 
And uh, right. I, I think guys that have played different sports and and understand how to play whatever game that they're playing, it, it's a, just a different level of skill set that goes into it. It's not all about measurables. It's that you know, speaking of the, all the NBA drafts out this coming up, it's not all about measurables. It's not all about your shuttle time or whatever it is. It's about what you do uh, in the context of a game, and that's why someone like Donovan Mitchell may not have the you know the best measurables last year at the NBA draft. But you watch him play the game of basketball, and you know he knows how to do things, and he knows how to use what he has and the skills that he has to uh, to be a superstar. So um, that's always good news. Uh, and uh, let's talk about uh, we 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 have the the summertime. Obviously, we're on summer vacation. A lot of people are you know trying to figure out what they want to do in this dead period of sports. Um, obviously, the NBA draft once that's over, we really hit the dog days of summer, but. You have some recommendations for what coaches should do on, on their summer vacation. You know, you know, Tate Frazier, I think I learned this a long time ago. Henry Kissinger said in his memoirs, when you go to Washington, you borrow on the intellectual power you bring, and you can't renew it once you're there. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the NFL is a little bit like that. If you're an assistant coach like my sons or anybody, you know, this next four weeks are probably the only time you're going to develop and grow yourself as a, as a person, as a father, as a husband, as anything, as a leader. You know, all those things, and you got the only way to do it is to read. You know, I mean, Warren, Warren Buffett reads 500 pages a day. I mean, now he's got a lot of time to read, but he reads <laughs> it. I mean, he makes time to read an hour a day, two hours a day. George Raveling, one of my heroes of all time, I've talked to you about Coach Rav. If anybody wants to learn about coaching, follow Coach Raveling. He's a, a newsletter every week. It comes out every Saturday morning. Fabulous. Man reads all day long, but... I think what you have to do is, on summer vacation, you've got to find a way to read. And I know Belichick will find time to, A, get himself ready for the season. You know, he spends a lot of time on the college draft. I mean, there's got to be two to three hours a day that you can cultivate yourself to improve. And I think if you read, and reading is the only thing you can, you can do. You can study tape, you can study tendencies, but unless you want to enhance your mind, the only way to do that is read. And I, I would read, if I was a young coach listening to this podcast, I would read Legacy. I would read a book called Smarter, Faster, Better. It's a fascinating book, Tate Frazier, and it's really what's wrong with the NFL draft. It's the, it's the groupthink mentality and how bad groupthink is. Mm-hmm. It's a great book to read. The other book I, I, I talked to you about is Coach Wood and Kareem. Yes. Great yes. insight into Coach Wood. Fascinating read into Coach Wood. The other one I thought was great was Shoe Dog. You know, like when you read Shoe Dog about Phil Knight, you realize how how many struggles he had. You see Phil Knight today, and you see one of the richest men in the world. But when you read this book, you realize his vision was what his power was. And then the other book that I'm just absolutely in love with is called The Boys in the Boat. It's about the 1936 Olympic rowing team for the United States and how they came together as oarsmen on the lake and won and won uh, and won the gold medal in 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 Germany with Adolf Hitler. Fascinating wow. read about the power of people working together. So those would be the five books I would read this summer, and all of them are great. A couple of them you can read in a day or two. Legacy you can read in a day. Uh, I think you can read Shoe Dog in a day, and you can read Coach Wooden in a day. And, so uh, really the only other ones, that t- they take a little bit of time. Absolutely. Uh, I should say that uh, Shoe Dog is Bill Walton's favorite book. Uh, for people that didn't watch college basketball, during the Maui Invitational, uh, Bill Walton read Shoe Dog while he was on the air during the middle of a basketball game. So that's, how, that's yeah, how good of a book it is. It, and it's easy, and it's an easy read. I mean, it's not, and he's not, and the thing I like about it, and I hope people that read my book, it's not a self-serving book. Like, mm-hmm. my book has, I know the title's Gridiron Genius, but it's not about me. It's about the geniuses I've worked for. And so, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a book about how humbled I am to be able to have learned from so many people. And I think that, that that's by, when you read Shoe Dog, you get a sense of the humbleness of Phil Knight. 
and you get the sense of why his authenticity was so great. But really, when you read Legacy, you basically have a roadmap to the future. Uh, James Kerr did an incredible job with that book. But smarter, faster, better. I, I'm going to talk to the right. I got to find the. Uh, the I'm going to try to contact that the writer who wrote the book uh, because I think there's a bi- another book in there about why the NBA, NFL and NBA draft are all bad because uh, most of it is based on groupthink mm-hmm. and groupthink doesn't work. Yeah, in the words of uh, Bill Walsh, if we're all thinking alike, no one is thinking. Ain't no one thinking, Tate Frazier. Absolutely. This has been another edition of GM Street. We will be back in a couple of weeks to get you all uh, caught up on everything that's going on in the world of the NFL. Uh, Next week, uh, Kevin Clark and Robert Mays will be back on this feed. Until then, thank you, Mike Lombardi. Thanks, Tate Frazier.